Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. A message from our sponsor, Curtis Brown Creative. If you're an aspiring author, you'll be excited to hear that this week's sponsors are Curtis Brown Creative, the renowned writing school affiliated to the major literary agency. Since launching in 2011, over 150 of their students have gone on to get major book deals, including best-selling authors Jesse Burton, Jane Harper and Kate Hamer. CBC ran a wide range of courses for writers at different stages of their creative journeys. If you have a complete first draft of a novel and want guidance as you embark on your rewrite, as well as crucial insights into the publishing process, then their best-selling Edit and Pitch Your Novel course is for you. This six-week online course includes exclusive teaching videos from CBC's founder, Anna Davis, and the agents at top UK literary agencies, Curtis Brown and C&W. Students also get the opportunity to receive individual feedback from one of CBC's expert fiction editors. Visit www.curtisbrowncreative.co.uk to find out more about all the courses they offer. Curtis Brown Creative have provided an exclusive discount for Always Take Notes listeners. You can use the code ATN20 for £20 off the full price of any four or six week online writing course. Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Simon speaks with David Shelley, CEO of Hachette UK. I spoke with David about starting his career at independent publisher Allison and Busby, about his path to become CEO of Hachette and about attempts to diversify the publishing industry. It's a great episode. We hope you enjoy it. David, welcome to Always Take Notes. It's, it's great to have you on the show. Um, I wanted to start off really at the, at the beginning of your career and also, I suppose, at the beginning of your life. Is it correct that you were born in Germany, but then you grew up above a secondhand bookshop in East Sussex? Uh, that is true. Um, yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I spent the first three years of my life um, in Germany because uh, my, my father was uh, out there doing a job. And then uh, he started um, um, a bookshop in Lewis in East Sussex and as a family we lived above the shop so yeah, that is all correct. And what kind of stuff was in the shop? Was it an antiquarian bookshop or, or a broader selection of stuff? It was a mixture so uh, it was antiquarian and secondhand basically um, so there were there were sort of a kind of old penguin paperbacks and then some you know uh, more antiquarian stuff as well and he specialised in um, a few different things, but firstly, material relating to Sussex and Lewis, where it was, uh, and also uh, geology as well, um, and Japan. Quite an eclectic, uh, quite an eclectic collection. And then it's right that you went to state school, and then you were in the first, you were the first person in your family to go to university when you went on to Oxford. That's right. Yeah. And what was it like arriving at Oxford and coming into that environment? Um, I do remember my first night there was having drinks in someone's room and everyone was talking about their nannies and um, who their nannies had been and, and what their names were. And um, someone was describing uh, being ridden around, uh, riding on a horse around a paddock with a, with a plank strapped to his back um, by his nanny. And I remember just thinking, oh my God, what, what on earth? what on earth is this? What on earth have I done? I'd only ever read about nannies in books. I didn't know that actual people had nannies. What was, what was the plank for? <laughs> I think to, to make sure we had a very straight back. I see. Um, 
so so I guess I guess it's sort of taught equestrian skills and um, and posture at the same time. So very 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 practical. And then when you when you left university, is it right that you wanted initially to work in poetry publishing, but realised that that was a, a very small world and that there were no or no one was kind of moving on and moving up in that. Yeah, I mean, it was my absolute dream. I love poetry. Um, and I, when I was at university, uh, I was sort of really into the Poetry Society and um, uh, led the Poetry Society in Oxford, which was amazing and met, met some really interesting poets. So I was, it was my absolute kind of passion. And when I left, I was just intent on becoming a poetry publisher. And I did some, I did work experience in two wonderful poetry publishers, Anvil Press and Carcanet. And what I discovered in both of them is, A, they were both really small, and B, everyone who worked there loved working there and, was, you know, that there just weren't any other opportunities. I think if something had come up, then I'm, well, I'm, I'm probably, I hope, I think I'd probably still be a poetry publisher now because it's, it's a wonderful world to operate in, a wonderful um, medium. And were you a, a Craig Rain protege coming out of university? Because it seems that there's been a kind of lineage of, of people that he taught in Oxford who've gone in all sorts of areas in the in the kind of literary world um i was taught by craig rain i wouldn't say it was a protege but i was i was taught by him yeah uh, and then so you get this this job at a, a small publishing house at allison busby and then you're made you're made publishing director when you're 23 and um could you what, what was that like how did that experience come about and how were the the reins handed to you when you were at such an early stage in your career yeah it was a very unusual situation in that allison and busby um had been owned when I joined it for, for some time by a Spanish company called Editorial Prensa Iberica. And my boss at the time was a wonderful man called Peter Day. He had to retire um, because of ill health. He had to stroke and, and had to retire. Um, then someone else came in who didn't, who the Spanish company, Editorial Prensa Iberica, didn't feel had worked out. And so they, the boss of Editorial Prensa Iberica, a brilliant man called Javier Mole, um, he called me over to Barcelona and said, look, I know you're only 23, but, uh, you know, this company's in serious trouble. And I think um, I'm either going to close it down or I'm going to give you a chance just to just to see if you can make it work. Um, and so I yeah, it was a very it was a very strange it was a very strange situation to be in at that, that age. I mean, it was a very small company. It was five people. But I, be, I basically had to make a decision. Am, am I going to, at the age of 23, try and run a, run a, I mean, a very small company, but run a company? Or am I going to, I'd always imagined I would do the usual sort of career trajectory of, you know, being an editorial assistant, then an assistant editor, then moving to a bigger company and et cetera. But I sort of thought, well, if I don't do this, I'll always wonder what it could have been like. Uh, and, and also, I didn't want the company to be closed down. I sort of thought, well, if this is, the, you know, it's it had a wonderful heritage. Um, so I just thought it would be incredibly sad if it were closed down and I'd love to try and make it, um, make it work. But I was very, very scared as well. It was pet petrified. And is it right that two months later, the distributor went bust? Yeah. Yeah, they were trying to become millennium compliant. I don't know if you remember all of that. when okay. so, so, so companies were trying to update their computers. Oh, right, to avoid the... Y2K bug. But in, in so doing, it completely fucked the computer system up and uh, and the whole thing went bust. So I had to find a new distributor, which is a 23-year-old who knows nothing about book distribution, was a was an education. Uh, what kind of stuff were you publishing? 
So Alison Bosby's, oh, I mean, it was founded in 1967 and actually I was always, and up to this day, it has always been a mixture of sort of literary fiction, crime fiction, commercial fiction, um, mixed kind of trade nonfiction, really quite eclectic and usually sort of about who um, who the publisher who the publishers are there and and what their tastes are and what they like but in those broad categories and I saw in an interview you gave about that time you said that it was an absolute reality check that publishing is a business could you talk about how that was you know drilled into you then and how maybe that has has stayed with you since that point yeah I mean as I said I, I went into um, publishing because I love poetry um I really I suppose I had no conception particularly of it as a business um and until I was handed the reins to Alison and Busby I'd never really thought about that how we paid our bills how many books we needed to sell in order to pay bills and staff and all of that and it was only when it was only when I was faced with this thing and my boss in Spain had said to me well basically you need to make sure there's enough money coming in um to you know to pay everyone and to pay for everything otherwise we are you know we are going to close it down that really sharpened that really sharpened my mind um and and I had I had good people he had good people in Spain who explained to me what a PNL is what accounts are but I mean look I got a which is like I got a B in maths and and my no C I got a C in maths and my teacher was amazed that I got a C in maths so um at GCSE so I, I I'm I'm not a person who came from a sort of very numerical background. That's never been uh, my interest. But but having to having to do all of that meant that that I, I really focused a lot. Um, just because you know I didn't want the company to be closed down and I wanted to pay all the bills. It's quite. I mean, it's completely different, but also oddly similar to the experience we had. Rosie Nixon, the editor of Hello Magazine, on the show, and she also had a sort of distant Spanish patriarch that kind of owned this company and had to fly to Spain and, and do all of that. I was wondering, could we talk about one of these books that you you mentioned from this period? So, in two thousand and one, the Encyclopedia of Cult Children's Television. Where did that come about, and how did that fit into what you were doing at that time? So that was that for me was a key book, I suppose, in my career in that. It was an idea that I had. So, so I had this task, which was to make money to keep the company going. And I thought, well, at the time, there's a lot of no, sort of nostalgia about, you know, stuff that people grew up with of my age. You know, I was obviously young then, kind of in our childhood. And I thought, well, what about a book on a, a book about cult children's TV, uh, kind of funny, uh, right, whatever. And it's one of, I suppose, now one would call it an IP project, and you know, intellectual property project, an idea that I came up with. And then I, I got a very funny, talented writer called Richard Lewis to write the book. Um, and it was sort of a key book for me because it was, I guess, where creativity and commerce come together. That, that's an, an idea that I had. Um, I kind of put the package together. Richard wrote a brilliant book. And then it sold really, really well for us. I mean, in Alison and Busby terms, uh, which was about 35,000 copies, which for us was huge. Um, so for me, it's a very happy memory. Firstly, working with Richard, the writer, I guess, secondly, that I come up with the idea that, that you could, you didn't just need to wait for agents to send you books or writers to send you books. You could come up with an idea. And then thirdly, it was really important because it made quite a lot of money for the company uh, and was the first, I suppose, big hit that we had when I was there uh, and enabled us to, you know, pay our bills, pay our staff, do all the things we need we needed to do and to carry on. 
So it was um, it was a mixture of things. And where did the the Black Brook? So that was a few years earlier, but that's 1998, right? So that was also during your early years there. Yeah, and I picked that book because it's this, this wonderful, wonderful literary novel called The Black Brook by Tom Drury, who is an absolute genius. He's he's what to my mind one of the best living writers, American writer. Um, and it's I would say it's a kind of picaresque uh, novel about a man who has to live in uh, FBI protection, but it's sort of a, it's sort of a, I don't know what you call it. It's, it kind of meanders around, but it's beautifully written. It's really well observed. I picked that book because that was a book I was absolutely passionate about. One of the first books that I published and I was super excited about it. And I, I knew that this guy was incredibly talented. Um, and I knew that it was an important book. Um, however, it really sold not many copies at all. So I picked that one because that was, I think that's something you also have to, um, have to negotiate as a publisher, um, which is that sometimes the books that you absolutely love don't sell the way that you want them to. And there's a certain amount of, I would, I would, I would it's not too strong a word to say heartbreak about that. Um, and I guess that, so that was, well, cultural and TV was a really positive, happy experience of creativity and commerce coming together. The Black Brook was a case of some, something where I wanted to make the author proud by selling lots of copies. I wanted to reach lots of readers with it. I wanted everyone to feel what I did about it. And for whatever reason, I mean, maybe because it's not a book that can be described very easily. Uh, it just it just didn't. And that was, I guess, a lesson to me that sometimes sometimes you have to deal with that. The, the, the books that you really care about and believe in don't sell as well as you want them to. Um, and uh, and that's that's really hard. Is it? And it's really hard because you, you want to do well by the author. What happened to the author's career after that book? Um, he has gone on to uh, write other wonderful novels um, that, to my mind, have never sold in the quantities that they sh should do, given how talented he is. Um, and every so often, someone will write an article about him saying, he's an absolute genius. Why doesn't he sell more copies? Uh, why isn't he recognised? I am also cognizant, you know, now doing the job that I do in Hachette, that we have in, in our list, we have the... Virago and Virago Modern Classics. I'm conscious there are books in Virago Modern Classics that when they were published in the author's lifetime, um, never sold that many copies. And now 50 years later are acclaimed as ma major classics. So I feel often that's the way in publishing as well. And someone like Tom Drury, I wouldn't be at all surprised if in 30 years, whatever, people, you know, he's the sort of author that's rediscovered and, and sells. And you can, I think that's another lesson about publishing is sometimes there are books that sell incredibly well in their first year and there are other books that really don't sell well but are discovered much, much later. Could you tell us about your move to Little Brown? So you're 29 and you're hired to be a crime editor. So that's quite a long way from poetry where you'd sort of wanted to start out. How had that journey taken place? <laughs> well, I, when I was at Alice, I mean, I've always enjoyed reading crime fiction. When I was at Alison and Busby, I realised that actually the crime list was one of the most profitable lists. Um, and it was one of the ways, you know, with this task in mind of keeping Alison and Busby going, paying the bills, paying the authors, um, paying the staff. Uh, it was one of those things that I realised, OK, we need to ramp this up a bit because it's a very successful list. 
So I'd done quite a lot of crime publishing at Alison and Busby. And, um, you know, there'd been some, some authors who'd, who'd done well. And so I suppose I'd been, that was an area in the industry, I guess some people had noticed, oh, Alison and Busby's doing more crime, the crime's doing quite well. Um, the person who hired me at Little Brown, very inspiring publisher, Ursula McKenzie, she, she and her team had spotted that I'd done that. And so um, she, she wanted uh, that the current crime editor was retiring and she wanted someone to replace the current crime editor, uh, Hilary Hale, who, who was a legend in her own right. And I was actually, I think Hilary, who'd recommended me to Ursula. Um, and, and, and to begin with, actually, I t I'll be frank, I turned the job down because I thought, well, you know, I, I'm actually loving now. This was, I'd, I'd run Alison Busby for five years. It was making you know, it was making some money. It was growing fast. Uh, I loved having the autonomy. I loved being able to publish all the books that I liked um, and to, you know, have this nice mixture. But then, so to begin with, I turned the job down and then I thought about it over Christmas. Um, and my partner, my, who's now my husband, he said to me, well, look, you keep going on and on about this. You've turned it down, but it's clearly playing on your mind. And it clearly was another... You know, it's clearly another thing that if you don't do it, you'll always wonder about it. Um, I think you should, you know, you should call Ursula up and tell her you made a mistake and um, that you would like the job. So that's what I, that's what I did. And it was sort of on the basis that um, I'd had all this freedom, this autonomy running this company, but equally, I, there was something at the back of my mind that I knew that there are things that big publishers do that small publishers don't do. And I wanted, I always like to learn. I always like to do new things. And I thought, well, I'll never learn that stuff if I always stay at a small publisher as much as I love it. Uh, and even if this is a much smaller role at a large company, I'll learn how to sell books in supermarkets, how to sell books online, how to do marketing campaigns, you know, all, all the things that I'd never really got a chance to do. So it, at the end of the day, it sort of felt like an opportunity I, I, I had to take up, even though the, even though the range was much narrower than previous role we had uh, Val McDermott on the podcast recently we've had Ian Rankin on before a, a point that they raised was that the, the kind of status of crime fiction over the last 30 years has had a tremendous change from being something that people were quite snooty about uh, regarding it very much in a, in a genre silo to this idea that it's a more expansive kind of groove that you can bring all sorts of other things into were you conscious of that change going on as well um I would say definitely, so that was 2005. I would say definitely then there was still an enormous snootiness about it. I mean, to be honest, I would say there still is. I think people don't, I think, I think, I don't think there's a snootiness among readers. When you, when you sort of see research, you see that actually readers don't classify themselves in that way. And a reader wouldn't differentiate a Val McDermott novel or an Ian Rankin novel from an Ian McEwan novel or a Julian Barnes novel. They would just be books they enjoy, and readers tend not to just read in one uh, one genre. And um, but within, I'd say within the industry, uh, there is this sort of that there can be this sort of snootiness, and, um, and particularly, I'd say with literary prizes and things. I would say in two thousand and five, it would have been unthinkable that a crime novel could ever be up for the Booker. I think that's a really welcome development in the last few years. So yeah, I, I was definitely conscious. I was definitely conscious of it within the industry, and crime, crime editors. I would say at that time were definitely looked down upon. Probably um, crime and women's women's fiction editors were looked down upon by more literary editors. 
And what was some of the work that you were doing in, in the in digital publishing when you first moved to Little Brown? I, I've seen that um, when you got there, you found that ebooks were doing about a hundred pounds a year in, in in turnover. And then you know this is pre iPhone, pre Kindle. Like what was what was going on in that space, and, and what what did you do? So so actually, I mean, I did very little. Ursula was very ahead of her time in that she was abs- she absolutely saw this coming and had been intent on converting all the physical books into ebook format and making them available, which in 2005, very few publishers were doing. When I joined, I guess because I was ambitious and because I like to learn things, I'd said to her, can I do something more apart from the crime fiction? And she said, oh, well, okay, you can have audio and ebooks. And audio was a serious business, you know, a reasonably serious business at that time, although nothing like it is now. But ebooks was this tiny business. And I was excited by the idea of ebooks. And then, yes, as you, as you saw, I, I got in and discovered it was about £100 a year. So commercially, not that exciting. But I just I basically continued to do the thing that Ursula had always done, which was to make all the books available, try and find any routes to market that there were. And then what was very exciting about 2008, uh, the Kindle was launched and there was this absolute explosion. So sort of by being in the right place at the right time, um, I was you know, able to see that and to be part of that digital revolution, which was hugely, hugely exciting. And I, I can't really, I can't really emphasize enough what, what, what a change that was in ebook and in audio, of course, because when I, in, in audio, it was interesting when I joined in 2005, I mean, cassettes still made up 40% of the revenue. So CDs were 60%, cassettes in 2005 were 40%. And everything was abridged, right? Because you, you had limitations. and you had Everything limitations. was abridged, yeah. Yeah, almost because to do non-abridged, unabridged um, would be 20 CDs or something or 20 or even more tapes. It, would, it w- wouldn't be feasible. So you had to do, and, and often it was quite, so there were some brilliant abridgments, but it was quite hard because if you're cutting down a, a novel from effectively like 150,000 words to 40 or 50,000, you take out a lot and in abridgments, they'd have to take out subplots and things like that. So it was often artistically quite a, quite a fraught and um, unsatisfactory process. So that was very exciting, seeing, being able to, over the next few years, transition from these CDs and the tape to be able to retire the tapes finally, which I think we did in 2008, 2009, and then the CDs, um, and then move to this sort of unabridged um, digital model what was really exciting. But it seems that, um, you know, some of the predictions that were around at that time that uh, ebooks were going to kill the paper book and so forth, that that, that didn't didn't come to pass. And I, I read a while ago a really interesting piece about the Frankfurt Book Fair in 2009, where people were kind of in the sort of existential fear that that paper books were not going to exist and everything like that. And actually, it seems that the, the market has achieved a sort of equilibrium. How do you think that came about? I think, and, and, and I would say, having looked at the growth in those early years myself, I would have put myself in the camp. I don't think I ever thought paper books would stop existing because we could still see strong pull from the market always but i i did think that ebooks would gain a more of a stranglehold i think what actually happened is that there was what what i think the analysis didn't take account of is there was an enormous novelty factor when kindles first came out people were just the novelty of it was just extraordinary and you know other e-readers obviously as well and people were just absolutely kind of 
binge on on ebooks that just being able to i mean it is extraordinary being able to get a book wherever you are in the world at any time of day or night is an amazing thing being able to go on holiday just with this tiny thing with you know 15 20 books loaded up on it for, for people who like to read a lot it was amazing um but i think what happened is then people there are some people who thought well i'm only going to read on this going forward but a lot of people thought, well, actually, I love this, but I equally, I, I love my paper books as well, my print books. And so I think the majority of readers then settled down to a like sort of, well, I'll use my Kindle in these particular situations. And I hear this a lot from people. I use my Kindle on the plane. I use it when I'm, you know, on holiday. But when I'm at home, I like print books or I like nonfiction in print. I like fiction, uh, ebook, whatever. But, but there was more of a, a mix that people had. Um, we also hadn't figured on that actually the sort of the people who like ebooks the most tend to be older readers, um, which was is a, I guess counterintuitive when you think about digital revolutions and things like that. But um, you can obviously you can adapt the print size. So for um, people particularly sort of sixty five plus, that's that's very useful. And also um, ebooks can be very cheap. So as well, for someone living on a limited budget with a lot of time to read, I, you know, an average retired person, um, ebooks make a lot of sense. But the interesting thing was particularly when we talk to younger readers, they, there's a sense of digital fatigue. They're, they're online so much and they see actually books as a respite from that and they want them in print format. So actually, I think it's, you know, it's settled down to probably about 70, 30, 70 print, 30 ebook split. And where did Panic by Jeff Abbott, so this is the third of the books you mentioned, where did this fit into what you were doing at that time? So this is, again, a book that I look on with a lot of fondness. Jeff Abbott's a wonderful thriller writer. He'd published several books with other publishers and um, with sort of not that much success in the UK. Um, he's an American thriller writer, but he'd not been that successful in the UK. Uh, and then I remember getting the submission of Panic. I think it was in my, it was in my first year at uh, Little Brown from the agent. And I just thought, wow, uh, this, is, this is amazing. It was, it was about um, a young guy who basically his life um, had all been a lie. His, uh, nothing was as he thought it was. His parents basically had brought him up um, and they'd been, well, I, I won't spoil the plot for anyone who wants to read it, but everything in his life was a lie. Uh, and his world was turned upside down when he sort of found out that his parents were secret agents. And every page, there's something dramatic that happens. Uh, it's an absolutely gripping sort of uh, textbook thriller, I would say. Um, that was an exciting book for me because I thought, well, actually, I think this book could be huge. And it was, again, I suppose this mixture of creativity and commerce that excited me. I worked very, very closely for a long time on it with a um, really talented cover designer at Little Brown, Sean Garrahy. And I think, I don't, I don't think it gets spoken enough about, about enough, the kind of relationship between an editor and a designer. And when that's going well, that sort of, you know, you're more than the sum of your parts. So I, I was trying to convey to Sean kind of the look and feel he was coming up with making all these creative leaps. Um, and we were both just thinking, what is absolutely going to, when you see it on the shelf, what is absolutely going to pop out? What is absolutely going to make consumers say, I have to read that book? Um, and he came up with this brilliant cover for it, really simple, just this red panic on a white background, kind of beautiful finishes. I, you know, I spent many hours doing the 
that cover copy like we agonized about every single element of it and then it worked really really well it just it was the sort of book you just put it on a book on a shelf in a shop and it sold like you know so the the, the stock turn was amazing um and it just kept on selling and selling and in the end it sold over four hundred thousand copies and that for me was a really important book because i ne- nothing i'd ever published at allison busby had that market reach and it was important book in lots of ways in terms of how many copies of a book could reach. I would see people reading it everywhere, which is the most exciting thing for any editor. Um, and also, I suppose I could see, because I think people can be, and myself included, could be snooty about large companies or big corporates or whatever. It was like, well, actually, this is, there was a huge team of people behind that book. There were some really talented salespeople who got it into all the, all the different channels, talented marketing people, you know, just, just, just this incredible um, team of people who, who helped that to happen. And that was really exciting for me after this sort of scrappy, slightly, um, you know, less professional, smaller publisher. It was like, wow, this is what a large publisher could do. And it can get this guy's book out into all these places and it can sort of transform a writer's career. So that was that. And, and Jeff was the nicest man ever. So that that was amazing as well to be able to 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 do that for that book. A message from our sponsor, Vitsu, Melvin's story. We love, love, love our Vitsu shelving. Build quality and ease of assembly is amazing, but it was your service that made the whole process such a joy. So said Melvin from Sydney in this heartfelt message to his Vitsu planner Sophie in London. Love is a word heard a lot at Vitsu. Other verbs just don't seem to cut it. As with any customer, Sophie considered every detail, so Melvin's bookshelves were perfect for his needs. Passionate about good service, she communicates with all her customers directly, wherever they are in the world. Whether in person or on the other side of the globe, Vitsu's planners hold your hand throughout the process, time and again proving that long-distance relationships really do work. Every interaction is handled with love from Vitsu. Vitsu's 606 Universal Shelving System is a modular, adaptable kit of parts. It can provide the perfect home for your books and even the desk from which to write one. Visit vitsu.com, that's V-I-T-S-O-E.com, or request a free brochure via email at vitsu.com by quoting ATN 606. Vitsu, makers of long-living furniture by Dieter Rams. And how did your career progress? I mean, pretty rapidly. You're, so in 2009, you're deputy publisher at Little Brown, your publisher, 2011, 2015, uh, CEO of Orion, and then Little Brown, and then took over at, at Hachette UK. How did, how did that kind of um, take, unfold for you? And then also, what, what has been your view of, of the role of, of mergers and of amalgamations in a kind of increasingly consolidated uh, publishing industry, particularly as someone who began their career really outside that? I mean, I mean, it sort of happened, I would say, organically. I think I've always, I always had a very, very good relationship with Ursula, my boss who brought me in. Um, we worked very closely together. I think the more we worked together, you know, the more, and I guess she saw that I liked doing new things. I liked taking on new challenges um, and she was comfortable to give me more. So, so, so that sort of evolved quite organically. She then was 
you know, approaching retirement age, she wanted to, it was her aim to sort of hand over to some, her appointed successor um, and hand over in a, in a, you know, in a really good way. Um, and so that's what we, that's what she did. That's what we did. Um, so I was very lucky, very, very lucky having, having a champion like that. And was, I've always been conscious of it since then that I want to sort of fulfill that same role for the people who, who, who I work with um, and champion younger people and give them new opportunities and people who want to learn and expand to, to allow them to do so. So it sort of worked in, in that organic way. And then actually Tim Healy Hutchinson, um, who was the head of her shirt, I sort of, when I used to retire, then I worked with him, I guess in a similar way, we always work really well together. And uh, then he and Arno Nuri, uh, who was head of Hachette Globally at the time, um, put, put, put me into that role, which was a, you know, obviously a huge honour and responsibility and, and vaguely terrifying as well. Did, did it raise any eyebrows that you had come up through crime? I mean, you mentioned there was, a, you know, that people were snobbish about it and, and things like that. I mean, how do you think coming from from that part of the business was perceived and how did you feel about that? I think uh well you never know what other people are, are saying and I think publishing has has many virtues oh, I think one of its vices is people often don't say to your face what they're saying behind your back uh, there's a sort of culture of niceness which is it's not always not always nice so so yes I'm sure people were probably snarking about about that um but for, I guess fortunately not to my face they weren't um, they were probably even very nice um, I think, I think editors, I think, I think if you're an editor in the business, you're always, I feel quite pleased when another editor gets the top job because in publishing, there are various routes. Obviously you can have a marketing person at the top. You can have a finance person. You can have someone from outside the business. I, I'm not saying there's any right or wrong to any of it. Um, but I definitely have always felt a kinship with other editors because that's how I came up. And I think editors, um, across the business, you know, hopefully welcomed having a former editor uh, run the business because you're close to writers and you're, you're close to, 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 to all of that. Um, there's definitely always a nervousness. I mean, I've experienced this in all job changes I've done. When someone new comes in, there's always a lot of paranoia. There's a lot of fear of change. Um, there's a lot of assumptions about who you are and, and what you want to do to the business. And I think because I was a crime editor, yes, I definitely felt there was an assumption that I wanted to make everything much more commercial and that maybe I didn't understand literary fiction or whatever. Um, so, so I think inevitably in any role, you have to spend a certain number of amount of time just di slightly dispelling assumptions. And you've made um, a big point about your, your diversity initiative. So setting up dialogue books and, and opening offices outside London. Could you... Tell me a bit about you know, what your intention was with that and, and how that has been going. Yeah, so, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think where to start with this one, really. I mean, I was conscious that Allison and Busby, you know, where I started, that it was founded by two people, Clive Allison and Margaret Busby. Um, and Margaret Busby was the first black woman um, to uh, run a publisher in, in the UK. Uh, and I was always conscious, actually, that that was in 1967. And I was very conscious that when I started in 1997, things hadn't moved on very far from that. And I, I was, frankly, I'm conscious now things haven't moved on very far. So I suppose I was very lucky in that I always had, I always had that in my mind of 
and also because Alison Bosby had this incredibly rich backlist of writers like um, C.L.R. James or Bucci Machita, or, you know, sort of M Margaret had bought an enormous number of incredible um, uh, novels and nonfiction um, by writers of colour. I, I was always really conscious, I guess, that that wasn't replicated across the industry um, and that there wasn't enough representation. And I suppose it's always something that, that has, I was, I was, I guess, lucky to have read those books and to have had that in, in, in my mind. So I always, I suppose, wanted to do something. Um, I, the catalyst really was a woman of color in the business. So this was five years ago, a bit over five years ago, writing to me. So I wasn't in my new role then, I was in a, my previous role, um, but she wrote to me and just said, Kind of in confidence, she told me about some of the things she'd experienced in the business that were nothing like things I'd ever experienced and were really, really bad things. Um, and I just thought, God, this is long overdue. We have to do something. So I would say, and so we started, I asked him, my boss, can, you, can I start this changing the story diversity initiative? We have to do something. He absolutely was like, yes, absolutely do that. And then put it out to people who wants to be part of this. And there was a mixture of people from across the organization. We all got together, right? What are we going to do? And it's sort of grown from there to be over a thousand people, eight networks, um, all this stuff. Um, I don't think it's something, it's something that I felt was necessary and overdue rather than something that was a laudable thing to do. Um, I still feel, I still feel as an industry, as a company, whatever, you know, we should have been on this far, far, far sooner. I mean, by that sort of 50 years ago or, you know, more. Um, so, so, so I think, I think it's sort of very late in the day, but equally I'm very heartened by all the work that's been done. You mentioned dialogue books, you know, Charmaine Lovegrave was an absolute game changer for us when she, she proposed the idea of dialogue books to me and to the MD of Little Brown, Charlie King, who's been a big supporter of hers. Um, and she's just, she's just flown since she set that up. It's been enormously successful commercially, creatively, um, and culturally as well. And Charmaine is the patron of, and one of two patrons, her and Nick Davis, one of the MDs, they're the two patrons of Changing the Story. Um, and, sh and she's made the most enormous impact sort of as a publisher and as a sort of in-house activist, I would say, um, yeah. So it's a rule of the show that we always ask about money and how it interacts with people's writing lives. And it, seem, it seems to me that in some ways money is, is the elephant in the room of the diversity debate because, you know, with, with a few exceptions, people, the amount that, that publishers pay for books doesn't, you know, it, it would be, it's much less than the time investment of authors putting in. I mean, wouldn't the, the most powerful uh, thing that publishers could do if they wanted to increase the diversity of writing books is, is to pay their authors more? I, I've, I, I guess I've got a particular philosophy on this in that in book publishing, a writer gets paid in advance against royalties. Um, and then if the book's successful, for every book that's sold, the writer receives a royalty. If you take a book that we do, just talked about, Jeff Abbott, Panic, um, Jeff received a very modest advance for his book. But the ambition that we had for, for it from the start was absolutely huge. And Jeff realised, I don't know, tens or tens of times more money from that book than that initial advance. Uh, 
So in, in, in the best sort of system, pub, publishers you know, will pay in advance against a book to a, to a writer, but then you know, when it does well, the writer shares in those spoils you know, really equitably. Um, and we'll make a lot of money from that. I'm thinking, you know, there are some dialogue authors, you know, who, who've, whose books have earned out very quickly and have made a lot of money above and beyond that. And the same I can think of elsewhere. I mean, I will also, I would also point to a, a really innovative company, Bookature, uh, which, we, which does ebook first um, and has very innovative digital marketing and a different sort of business model. We acquired them four years ago. Their, their model is they pay um high ebook royalties but no advance so writers don't receive an advance but they do receive high ebook royalties and they receive them on a quarterly basis which is um unusual in the industry so i think i, I guess i guess my answer is i think there are a lot of different business models i would like to think that we um we share money with authors in a really really fair way um i think I, I would never say any of us are perfect, but I, for me, for, for me, if we're talking about diversity and what we can do more of, for me, it's about the amplification of those voices, um, about how we market them, how we publicize, um, uh, how we get them to the greatest number of readers. If we get a book to the greatest number of readers, the writer will receive a, a very large amount of money, uh, um, that the, the advance is just in advance so can we talk about how the um the the business model of of publishing works in terms of the the revenue that that say yourself at share or or another you know large commercial company works in terms of the, the money that comes in how is how is the division in terms of how that is spent in terms of physically printing books in terms of uh paying salaries in terms of marketing publicity and also in terms of paying writers how does that division work um, I, I can't go into all the specifics, but I can go through what some of the component parts are. Okay. So, um, so obviously, and I think people often conceive that kind of printing the book is a is a very large part of it. It is a large part, but there's also physical distribution is a huge part of the mix. So we recently launched a new distribution center, which was built from from scratch, which is tens of millions of pounds investment, and that investment, that investment is about making sure that books, they go round conveyor belts. It's a books to person um, system, which is a kind of new, new system uh, with this, inc it's incredibly high tech, uh, incredible IT. And it basically means that all, all around the clock, books are going out all around the world to all our bookshops everywhere. Book distribution is one of the largest bits of the pie in terms of the investment. So there's the printing of the books, then they go to the warehouse, they get packaged up, they get sent out to, to bookshops. We have daily, more than daily deliveries to, to most bookshops around the world. Uh, so that's a very big investment. Then after that, yes, you've got publicity. Um, the investment obviously, obviously is largely in people, but then marketing, where increasingly that's digital marketing. So it's, um, you know, sort of pay, paying, for, paying for advertising online so the books get noticed. Um, you've got, we have a lot of sales reps who go, who go around shops talking to them about the books, um, head office reps. Uh, we've got designers, we've got, uh, photo shoots. There's, uh, there's, there's a lot of different bits to the, and obviously we've got editors. And I, th I think also the other bit that doesn't get talked about 
enough in my view is uh, sort of copy editors, structural, you know, proofreaders, um, people who are making sure that when the book comes out, it's perfectly, you know, it looks, you know, everything, everything is accurate. Everything is checked. Uh, the grammar's right, all of that sort of thing. And that's, that's an investment if you do it right. And I don't think we always do it as perfectly as we can, but we, we try. Um, so there, there are all of those costs. And then of course, you've got things like office costs. Uh, no, for instance, we're, we're doing these national offices where we're opening offices in Newcastle, Sheffield, Manchester, Edinburgh, um, Bristol, um, and as well as the big office in London. And so you've got those costs as well. So, so I think in, and I know this, I've spoken to friends about it in a punter's mind, it's often about just printing the book and then, then it, then it going out, but actually got all these other costs on top of it. And I, I know that you're, I know that there's, there's limits in, in terms of, you know, commercially sensitive information you can give, but in terms of the, the ballpark amount from, um, you know, yourselves or other publishers of the revenue that is actually used for paying writers, are you able to give an indication of what that is? Um, it's not something that we release um, uh, externally. And I don't believe it's something um, I've seen released by other publishers, but I would say in our, I can only speak for ourselves, it's a very large part of that pie. If it, if it were a pie, it would be, um, it would be a slice that, that you wouldn't, that you'd, you'd feel sick after eating. Let's say that. Okay. Can we, can we move on to the, the JK Rowling and Robert Galbraith situation? Is it right that that was at a, a sort of lunch in 2011 where this was um, sort of presented to you as it were? Yep, that's correct. Uh, I had I was due to have lunch with um, Neil Blair, who's an agent, and um, kind of came in for lunch. And then I saw he was with someone. And I just thought, oh, that's odd. I thought it was just going to be me and Neil. And then she turned around, and um, I recognised it was J.K. Rowling. So that was a surprise. So just for those who may not be familiar with this, so obviously J.K. Rowling had had huge success with Harry Potter, but then had had written these books under a, a different name. They were initially published under under a different name, and then her her cover was eventually blown. But I mean, in terms of, you know, how how did you run that as a publisher, and and then when it was revealed that she was the author, how did it affect sales and and that kind of thing? Yeah, so so basically, what I mean, her intent was to do something that uh, readers would not that that didn't use her celebrity in any way, um, and to be judged on the purely on the merits of a book. Um, so that was that was her intent with the Robert Galbraith thing. She wanted to publish three books um, before being open about it. It was challenging internally uh, to to do it um, because normally, obviously, you have a writer who's involved in the publicity and things like that. And this time, you know, we we, we didn't and had to you know give all sorts of reasons why Robert wasn't available to do things. Um, so so very very few people knew about um, you know who who the actual author was. The really pleasing thing about it was that the first book, The Cuckoo's Calling, got amazing reviews, um, really, really amazing reviews, and incredible reviews um, online as well. So exceptional reviews from readers. Um, it was a number one bestseller in audio, so it did incredibly well right from the start in audio. And was we were about to publish the paperback and everyone on the team was, you know, who didn't know who the author was, was really excited about it and thought, you know, we're going to have a big success with it. Um, and then I'm sure you, I'm sure you know this or it's that the, um, it was then revealed because someone in the solicitors, well, the wife of one of the solicitors had told a friend 
um, about it. And it had sort of got it. And she, I think she t- tweeted in because India Knights tweeted to say how much she enjoyed the book. And then, I, then I think I think the person had, t- tweet, had tweeted India Knight telling her who it was. So anyway, it sort of came out. It wasn't what the plan was. Um, it wasn't what was expected. I personally felt very disappointed because I really wanted uh, the three books to come out before, you know, which was the plan and for the books to become, you know, bestsellers, you know, before anyone knew. I mean, that said, when it did come out, obviously a lot of people wanted to read it. Um, it did really, really well. And the subsequent books have done really well as well. Um, but there's, there's still a part of me that thinks, oh, it would have been really nice to, you know, if, if that plan, if we'd been able to see that original plan. In terms of the, the booksellers that, that you deal with as a publisher, I was seeing that you were pretty tight-lipped by Amazon in, in an interview, but were, were kind of had much more open views on, on Waterstones and particularly on how that, that firm has, has reinvented itself in some ways. How, I mean, with Amazon, say as much or as little as you're, you're comfortable, but, but particularly with Waterstones and with how the interactions between yourselves as a publisher and, and booksellers, both corporate and independent, how does that work? I think it's the most important thing for me is having a really... Um, well, I think having a diverse ecosystem of book selling is highly important. I think on the one hand, it's really important to be, it's important to be wherever people are. So I would never disparage online book selling. I would never disparage Amazon because they're a highly successful business and a lot of people spend a lot of time on Amazon buying things. Um, I believe as a business, we need to be incredibly consumer focused and consumer obsessed as Amazon themselves are. And to really, really be where consumers are and make things easy for consumers. I don't think we should put unnecessary barriers up for consumers. I don't think we should say to consumers, you can get our books here, but not here, or to you know anything like that. I think we should make it incredibly easy. I think if you're a consumer, I just want you to be able to buy our book in whatever way feels comfortable, whatever format, anywhere. Um, but part of that, that I think as a nation, maybe we have taken for granted, and may, I hope post-COVID we're taking less for granted, is the role of high street booksellers in that. I think often when people go online, it's because they've seen something on the high street that they like and they go online to try and find a better price. Um, I, I hope and I think that people more and more are starting to think, well, actually, if I keep doing that, then the high street shop that I love might go under. Um, so I think it's very important for us as publishers and, uh, and for consumers to sort of acknowledge the role that actual kind of physical spaces have in their life. Um, for us at Hachette, that means like we sponsor Independent Booksellers Week, which is a really important thing for us, which is a celebration of independent bookshops. Um, I think in, uh, the, the, the really good thing on independent bookshops is after decline for many years, we're now starting to see more independent bookshops on the high street, which is fantastically encouraging. The caveat I would say to that is they tend to be in more affluent areas. So um, for people uh, who are low SES, they have less access to sort of um, high street bookshops, which is an issue. Um, But but, but I I think for us, it's really important for us to, as well as acknowledging that a lot of people shop online, to really support the high street in whatever we can, because the high street has influence in all sorts of ways that that we don't see. And we're, we're coming up against the, the end of our time, but a, a final question from me was about, um, about hiring. So this is, seems to be the other kind of part of the diversity debate, you know, beyond writers themselves, but how people get into the industry. And again, there's been some criticism, not, not just of Hachette, but this bookseller research on class. 
a frustration with regard to internships, nepotism, networking, that sort of thing. So, so when when you're bringing people on, how do you how do you find them? How do you pay them? And how do you you know is that has there been change in that area as well? Yeah, I think there has. Um, I mean, definitely when I started in the industry, there were so many internships that were you know godchildren of authors or children of staff or whatever. Unfortunately, that's gone. Um, and so, so now for our internship scheme, we have, we have several different schemes. Um, and I would say most of them have a sort of positive action um, ethos to them in that we're actively looking for applications from people from underrepresented groups. Are they paid, those schemes? Yeah. Oh, yes, yes, everything's paid. Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing. When I started out, my internships, nothing was paid. Yeah. Like, you were lucky. I mean, occasionally you get travel money or... And you, were, you, you had to come in from Sussex. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you sort of end up... Yeah, you end up using what? Well, I use the remnants of my student loan to to, to yeah. do that. Um, so, but so now, I mean, it's yeah, it's totally different. Um, everything's paid. We don't do anything unpaid. Everything goes through a system that is about, um, as I say, you know, the kind of positive action ethos, um, trying to get you know more diverse intake paid, and and also try and make sure that in those internships that people get more kind of upskilling people as well um, and we recently one of our divisions Orion recently did a, a great scheme uh, of kind of remote work experience paid work, remote work experience so for people who can't come to London who might have other commitments who can't take that much time off they, these were two-week paid placements that were just digital um, and I just saw actually an email from someone, uh, one of the people on there who managed to get another job and that experience had been very valuable to him getting on the job, which was very satisfying. Was there any pushback at bringing that cultural change? I mean, were there people who wanted their godchildren to, to be interned? And, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you finesse that cultural change? Um, my experience is, yes, there was, there was a huge pushback um, from from and I'm obviously not going to name any names, but but yes, there was huge pushback. And my my lesson I learned from it is you can't some, something like that. You actually couldn't finesse it. I literally sometimes had to say, "We're just doing this. You yeah. can like it or not like it." Because um, because you can try and finesse something like that, but at, at the end of the day, it's something that we needed to do. And I had to recognise some people won't like it, but and some people are kind of blockers and if people are trying to block something like that and they don't like it, then it's, then hashtag wouldn't be the right place for, for them, you know, to put it quite bluntly. Sure. Okay, David. Well, look, thanks for being a, a great guest and always take notes and wishing you all the best with everything going forward. Thanks so much, Simon. Thanks for having me. That was the Always Take Notes interview with David Shelley. He's not on social media himself, but you can follow Hachette at Hachette UK and their website is hachette.co.uk. We wanted to draw your attention to our crowdfunding page on Patreon. If you've been enjoying Always Take Notes, please do consider supporting us there. It helps us to keep the podcast going. If you support us on Patreon, you can get a great selection of rewards, including a shout out on the show and a selection of successful magazine pitches. If you pledge $10 a month, you also get a free two-month trial to Otter, worth $26, alongside the other rewards. Otter offers automated transcription and live note-taking for in-person and virtual meetings. I found it to be a huge help when organising interview material. Thanks again for supporting Always Take Notes. 
Hello, it's us again. I couldn't make this interview, but Simon did a stellar job and it was very interesting. What was your main takeaway from the discussion you had with David? I think it was just really excellent to talk to someone who's at this sort of nexus of editorial and commerce right at the top of a major publisher, Hachette being the second largest trade publisher. Um, We haven't had someone doing that job on before and getting a sense of the sort of mix of responsibilities that they had. Um, But but we discussed and we're actually, you know, we're keen to get some more people in in these big seats. And clearly it was a mix of sort of setting creative direction, but also you know, running running a major institution and then cresting social currents. I mean, he talked about what he was doing in response to Black Lives Matter and the, and the things that had come out of that. So clearly, it's um, it's a big job that he did, and it was you know it was good to, to get into that. And I think you know we we asked all the the tough questions that we usually do, and he was he was candid on those. So yeah, it was good good to have him along. Agreed. I enjoyed hearing about his rapid ascent up the up the corporate ladder. I couldn't believe that he like, was uh, like mete- meteoric, right? Yeah. Well, they meet his fall to earth, as the Economist style guide says. They do not decline. <laughs> um, but yeah, publishing director at 23, my jaw dropped. And I also enjoyed hearing about Hachette's attempts to diversify, as you say, both in terms of race and other demographic qualities, but also in terms of uh, location, um, opening offices around the country. So, so as to remove some of that London focus. Anyway, yeah, it's, as, as we were saying, it's definitely a kind of vein of guests that we want to get uh get more on the show so hopefully there'll be more of these these big bosses big bosses to come um anyway this has been always take notes hosted by me simon akam and me rachel lloyd our producer and social media editor is artemis irvin our score is by jess danheiser and our graphics are by james edgar if you'd like to follow us on social media you can find us on facebook and instagram at always take notes on twitter at take notes always our Patreon page is under Always Take Notes. And if you'd like to get in touch with us via our website or leave a review on iTunes, please do. Many thanks. Goodbye. Goodbye.